Hey, welcome to night school. I just want to preface this episode by saying it's sort of a follow-up episode, not quite an addendum, but a follow-up episode to yesterday's episode, which is about manufactured collectability and the idea of meaningful detachment. And with the show in general, I recommend listening in clusters. And this is not an attempt to try to get you to listen to more episodes. You know, you know why you don't understand this this episode you're listening to? Because you don't listen to the, to enough episodes. <laughs> uh, but I, I do feel like I I tend to think in clusters, and uh, I tend to go on certain tangents that last several episodes, even if the episodes aren't about the same thing. There's a certain you know line of thought, and I, I feel like they will refer to each other. So if, if something isn't making sense, you know, usually it's because I'm referencing something uh, from the last episode or a couple episodes ago. There's sort of a clustered way of thinking when I do these episodes. It's not even intentional. I think it's just the, the nature of things. You know, we have a certain momentum behind our thought. And, you know, just based on what we're paying attention to, based on what we're thinking, naturally that will bleed out. You know, in, in different conversations that we're having with people, uh, but of course it will in podcast episodes too. And so this episode in particular, I think it's important most likely to have listened to yesterday's episode, because the reason I want to even do an episode today is because uh, I felt like yesterday's episode sort of mi- misrepresented or didn't quite paint the full picture of what I was talking about. I talked a lot about childhood and you know nostalgia and the way that those things either become they become tainted in some way or somehow we lose touch with them and that leads us to the state of meaningful detachment that is actually desirable and the best example that I always use is how you know since Star Wars became bad when I was in seventh grade, since the new Star Wars movies, the prequels were bad, it allowed me to detach from that form of thinking I had when I was younger, which was that Star Wars was the coolest thing in the world. And so in being able to detach from Star Wars, it put me on a different trajectory rather than being that guy who is obsessed with Star Wars the rest of his life, you know? And uh, that's sort of a good... uh, a good example of just what I was talking about in yesterday's episode in general, where, you know, these collectibles, these things that I cared about when I was a kid, comic books, uh, trading cards, how the fact that those lost their literal monetary worth uh, was, you know, somehow kind of, uh, it allowed for some sort of detachment from any interest in those things, too. You know, it's like... In in with those things losing their monetary worth, they lost their worth as interest to me, and not because they lost their monetary worth, they just did, and how that gives you an opportunity. Whenever something that you were once interested in becomes no longer interesting to you, you can either hold on to it, you know, be like, this is a part of me, this is a part of my identity, and I'm never letting go. Or you can see that as a, a window of opportunity where you can let go and say, hey, you know, this isn't a part of me. This isn't something I need to define myself by. And uh, the reason I feel like I didn't really give the best picture, at least of myself, is because it's not like those things from my childhood, those things that I was nostalgic about, losing interest in these childhood things. It's not that those things gave me this window of opportunity recently. It wasn't like a recent thing where I'm like, oh, because... uh you know, pro wrestling sucks and Star Wars sucks. I can be a whole new person now. I can let go of those things. I mean, I, the reason I talked about those things is because they were a, an earlier part of that same process. And even though I didn't recognize it as such then, I've seen how that same process has played out and will continue to play out in my life. And I think other people have gone through the same thing, whether whether they realize it or not. And in some cases, they live their lives in opposition to that process happening. They cling on to everything. They're attached to everything. Uh, People. Uh, That process plays out not just with our superficial interests. It doesn't just play out with comic books, video games, movies, pop culture. Because yesterday I, I put an extra emphasis on pop culture. And 
you know, collectibles. Things that you'll find in a mall, essentially. Yesterday was basically an episode where I, I talked about how things that you'll find in a mall have kind of lost their monetary worth and their cultural worth. And people have struggled with that a bit because those were things that motivated people. Those are things that people were interested in. They were people's hobbies, and people are still into those things, but they are definitely less important now on a, on a you know societal level. And in some ways, people have replaced them with other things, but a lot of that is just rearranging the furniture, too. Uh, and that would be a good way to kind of segue into what I want to talk about, because you know, I didn't lose interest in, like, Star Wars and comic books yesterday. You know, this happened when I was younger, and a lot of that's, you know, normal. You become a teenager, and you're not going to be into the same things you were into when you were eight, hopefully. And a common one is music. When people become teenagers, they often either want to start playing an instrument, or they just become much more interested in bands. And that becomes part of their identity, part of their, you know, a representation of them. Uh, in my case, it was like, I want to, I want my t-shirts to have band names on them. I want to have patches with band names on them. I want people to, I don't want to just like music. I don't want to just spend all my time thinking about music. I want people to know how much I think about music. I want people to know how much I love music. To the point where I'm going to buy a sweatshirt by a band that I don't even own a record by, that I don't even, I don't even own their CD. I'm going to buy their sweatshirt because I, you know, it's all about that identity. Fortunately, I didn't do that too much. <laughs> but I, I do have this memory. I was thinking about it yesterday where I ordered a, a sweatshirt by a, a metal band when I was probably like 15 or 16. And they never sent it to me. I ordered it directly from the band. And, you know, they were probably stoned. Who knows what was going on. But they never sent me the sweatshirt. But I didn't own their CD. And I remember thinking, like, oh, well, I'll buy their CD next. After I get the sweatshirt, I'll buy their CD. And at that point, you couldn't listen to everything online. So, you know, really, I'd only heard a little bit of this band. And I just liked the idea of them. But I ordered the damn sweatshirt without even owning the CD. So I deserved to not get the sweatshirt. I, I feel like there was some justice in that, you know, where it's like, how dare I? How dare I just try to walk around like I'm the biggest fan of this band when I don't, I don't even own their damn music? Uh, but it, uh, that's the thing, you know, you, you let go of, uh, you no longer play with toys. You know, in my case, it was like I, I lost interest in video games and toys and like these nerdier interests I had when I was a kid. And I was also into football. And I kind of there were a few years there, if you can believe it, where I, I paid less attention to football. And I, I got immersed in this world of art and music, subversive art, subversive music, the subversive arts. I've taken uh, to kind of referring to that general world of interest that way by calling them the subversive arts. Uh, and that's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I would say it describes a lot of my interests, even now, but, you know, especially then. And, and so that sort of replaced, in some ways, these earlier attachments, whereas, you know, earlier I could tell you every alien that walked by in the background of Star Wars, you know, that moved on to, like, knowing every metal band from a certain country. You know, there's this displacement, replacement, can't really remember what uh, displacement means. <laughs> no, I know. I know what it means. Uh, but you sort of replace interests, or you replace attachments with new attachments. You replace, uh, you know, your, your focus shifts. It's just a, it's a shifting focus, but you still are paying attention to things in the same way. You're still looking for details, you're still looking for knowledge, uh, you're still looking to have your senses occupied in a certain way. I, I mean, you just you're looking to use your senses uh, in in because you don't want to just let them sit. God forbid you just sit there and not use your senses. Uh, you know, involuntary meditation. You know, with all the talk about you know incels and then my involuntarily sagging your pants. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is why you need to listen to older episodes. This is why you need to listen in clusters. Uh, but there's also, you know, involuntary meditation, which would be, you know, when you're not allowed to use your senses. It's what goes on in waiting rooms. 
And involuntary meditation is often torturous. So you got to use your senses, you know. You didn't give up Star Wars just to do nothing. You gave up Star Wars so you could listen to music, so you, you could get into movies, into film, uh, all that. And music is an obvious one because I just hear that story, I know that story, I am that story of, you know, you your interests shift as you become a teenager and music seems a little more serious, a little more cool, and you find out it's not, but still, you think that at the time, and uh, it gives you this sense of superiority, which, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole Melkor rant all over again, but it does bring that out of people, where it doesn't matter if you're into the subversive arts, if you're a pretentious, you know, jerk like me, and you're into these subversive art forms, this subversive music, uh, allegedly subversive music. It doesn't matter if that's your interest. It doesn't matter if you're just into whatever's on MTV. You know, when you develop a taste in music, it, you develop this false sense of superiority. And even if you don't lord it over people, there's this thought in your head where it's like, my taste is better. My taste is better. My taste is even better than the other people who have the same taste that I have. That's how <laughs> malignant this whole thing is, uh, is that you even feel superior over the people who are exactly like you. And maybe those are the people that you feel the most superior over, for whatever reason, your peers. But it's a common story that plays out. It doesn't matter what kind of music. I saw it happen with friends who were like into rap, into indie rock, you know, into metal. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, you know, people got into jazz, they, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, it seems that comes out of people. And it does happen in other art forms, of course. I mean, the arts are filled with that way of thinking. Everything's filled with that way of thinking. You know, it's like, even if you're into sports, it's like you're into the, your team is better. Even if your team doesn't win the game, it's like you somehow deserve to win more. The refs screwed you, you, you come up with excuses. Um, but, and with music, it's like, oh, well, they're not popular because they're actually too good to be popular, or they're too subversive, to go back to that word, you know, they, oh, they can't be, they're, they're not accessible, but they're actually achieving something far greater. They didn't win the Super Bowl, but they achieved something far greater. They have more integrity. Uh, they're not cheetahs. They didn't sell out. You know, we come up with all these excuses to justify our support of things, and if we do like the thing that is better than everything objectively, if we do like the team who won the Super Bowl, if we do like the, t the, the band that sold a million, whatever, I mean, whatever it takes to become platinum, a billion records, you know, that even is a justific obvious justification in and of itself. Oh, I, you, the record sales speak for themselves. I don't got to justify my taste in, uh, in U2. The record sales speak for themselves. They're obviously good. Oh, the bands you like? What did they, how many records did they sell? Not as many as you, too. I, I, you know, the Patriots are the best team. They're just the best team. They've won so many Super Bowls. You know, so it's, it doesn't really matter where you're coming from. You can always find an angle. And people do. And I, I always wonder if someone listens to me go on these sorts of rants and they think, what's he even talking about? Everyone I know is like totally just cool with what they're into and with what other people are into. This guy must hang out with, you know, assholes. He must be an asshole. And that's true, of course, you know. I know a lot of assholes and I am an asshole. But I also, I know that this plays out far more often. I mean, you see it online. All you have to do is look at a comment section on anything, on any website, a comment section about anything, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about here. So I know this doesn't just happen in some vacuum that only I exist in. Uh, and uh, so, but music is, is often this replacement, and it gives people this sense of, you know, you know, I have taste. I have taste. And then you have some people who get deeper, and they're into film, they're into this, they have these, they're into art, they're into fine art. Uh, and I have less experience with that, less experience with those people. But I think music is a really common one because, you know, it's accessible everywhere we go. You know, you can listen in the car, you can listen on headphones, you listen at home. Uh, it, it's just, it's not like a movie where you have to sit and all your senses are glued to it. It's like you can listen to music while you multitask, while you do a variety of things. And something about it just, you know... You might have been interested when you were a young kid, like I was into some bands when I was a kid, when I was in elementary school, but something about that junior high, high school period, it really kind of can overtake all of your interests, and you just become immersed in this world of music and bands. 
And uh, it's a great example, though, of, you know, where these earlier attachments that you let go of, you know, toys, for example, or whatever it is, whatever you were focused on as a little kid, uh, it gets replaced by something. And it might get maybe girls, you know, people cite that, too. They're like, oh, I got interested in girls, Music and girls. And I was even listening to a podcast recently where the guy was talking about how he stopped playing video games when he was, you know, around 14 or 15 because he got a guitar and just got immersed in that world of music. It's a highly relatable story. It's it's a common story where music takes over, girls take over. Not so much for me. I don't feel like I was suddenly like, my interest, girls. Of course, you think about girls a lot, you know, Obviously, uh, you know, you want to impress girls. Girls become a thing. But it's weird to me the idea of like that becoming like a, a whole interest in and of itself. I'm just really interested in like understanding their personalities and, and what they're into. No, that's that's another attachment really is just this idea of like how many girls can I get? I got a number. I, I got laid, you know. That just becomes this game that you're playing with yourself. Uh, but uh, it does become an interest for people as they become teenagers. And, uh, you know, we think that these are like more adult interests, too. We think that, you know, chasing girls and, you know, getting into music, going to going to rock concerts. We think that these things are more adult. And, and they, um, adults do those things, you know, those, especially now. It's like maybe not now, but I feel like what, what do pe- people do now? Uh, I don't know what people do right now. Uh, but those are things that adults do for sure is they go to concerts and they, they date, they go on Tinder. If they don't have somebody they're dating right now, they're on Tinder. Or sometimes even if they are dating, they're on Tinder. Uh, so those stay with people. Even though they get into them as teenagers, they stay attached to those things. Uh, and uh, But once you're an adult, you know, you don't really let go of too much more. You know, life just sort of presents itself where you get a job and then you become attached to the idea of that. You become attached to the identity. And, and, and by the time you're an adult, your identity seems to be, you know, the thing that you're holding on to more than anything. Because it's, it's a time where, like, there's no... Uh, external circumstances don't force you to change by the time you're an adult. They do, but not really in the same way they do when you're a kid, where you're going through these series of graduations, you're changing grades, your identity is constantly being pulled out from under you when you're a kid, and you're constantly being told, you're too old for this, you're too old to go trick-or-treating, oh, you're too old to be playing with, uh, you know, your He-Man toys, you're too old, you know, you're continually being told that. Every year, really, there's something else that you're being told you can't do anymore or you should be doing, and you're constantly being told that these new forces are going to be coming into your life. You know, you're taught sex education. Sex is going to be coming into your life, kid. Be ready. Uh, and if you're not ready, you might have a kid. You might, you, you know, you might not use protection. You might have a kid, and then the process is going to start all over again, and you're going to be especially fucked up because you're still going to be a kid. But yeah, growing up, you know, until you graduate high school, but then even through college, it's like you're still, you're preparing for that identity. And you have all these opportunities to embrace these new identities. It's not just that identities are being taken away from you. You're being given new identities to replace it. Uh, you're not a 10th grader anymore. You're an 11th grader. And that gives you a whole new thing to think about. Uh, it gives you a whole new way of being. You can call yourself something else. Because so much of it is really that. You think about what is the difference between a 10th grader and an 11th grader. Oh, you have to take uh, a state history class in 10th grade. Uh, you have to take this class in 11th grade. But there isn't even that much of that. That much of that. It's There's, there's a lot of uh, just... Really, the only distinction is that you're... 17 instead of 16 and you're a junior instead of a sophomore but you're given this new identity and you feel different even if you you know secretly deep down don't it's like everybody's you know just uh talking about it it's it's around you so much that at least externally you know everything kind of seems different superficially everything seems different and they're all talking about college 
And they're all just like, you know, you're going to go to college. And that's a whole thing. Like the college you go to, your field of study, whether you party or not. You know, there's all these new things that you can attach yourself to when you go to college. So up to that point, it's like you're, you're continually being, you're having identities taken away from you. You're having interests taken away from you. But you're being offered new identities and new interests. But then you get out into the world and uh, that process slows down considerably if it doesn't stop completely, if it doesn't just completely break down. And once you fall into a line of work, that kind of becomes you. Even if you change jobs, you know, even just having worked a job for a few years, and even if you go on to a completely new job, that previous job is still a part of you. It's like, oh, well, I was in, uh, you know, uh, I worked in a warehouse for four years. And uh, you can always refer to that. And you don't really let go of it. Once you're in the working world, you're a working adult. You don't really let go of much. And, uh, you know, by then, too, you've mounted up, like, all this momentum toward relationships within relationships. And you're making far fewer friends. That's a big part. You know, some people obviously struggle to make friends their entire lives. They'd never really have a, a social group in school. Uh, but as an adult, it's especially hard. So people end up defaulting to these coworker friendships, or they just fall in with a social group and just cling on to that because it's you're not going through that process of like, oh, I'm in a new class, a new grade, a, a whole new group of friends. You know, because that was something that always played out in school too. It's not just that you're going from fourth grade to fifth grade. It's like you're going to end up being closer friends with the people who are in your class because you were in the same class with the same people all year. You know, unlike junior high and high school, where you're just going to all these random classes with random people every day uh, in, in elementary school, a lot of your friendships are really cemented and formed by the fact that you're with the same people in the same room all year. And so naturally, you know, you go into adulthood and that's the situation you're in at work. You're back to that. You're no longer going to these different class classes like in college or high school where it's a different group of people every hour. Uh, and that changes four times a year, you're now, you know, with the same people every day. And, you know, especially if you move to a new area, you know, it's very difficult to make friends. Even for somebody who's very social, I would say, they're just really good at it, which is why it doesn't seem difficult. But what they're actually doing is a difficult process. Uh, like I said, they're just very good at it. It's almost like when you see a, a football player, a quarterback who's really good, and just you know, just because they make it look easy doesn't make it any less difficult to be an NFL quarterback. And I would say the same thing is true with extremely social, extroverted people that make friends everywhere they go. They're like quarterbacks. Uh, they make it look easy, but that doesn't mean it actually is easy. And for someone who's on the opposite end of the spectrum, it's really few things are more difficult. Uh, and, and so in that way, you know, making friends can be very difficult for people as adults. And what's a major part of our identity? What's something we get very attached to? Our, the identity of our friend group or our friends, the sort of relationships we make. Uh, so, you know, you are very much defined in some ways by who your friends are. And there's a reason why people will judge you for being friends with somebody who they don't like. Like, if you're friends with somebody that somebody else hates, you will get judged by proxy, whether it's fair or not. But there is something to be said for that, too, when you think about, you know, people who hang out together. Like, if you hang out with a pedophile and you know they're a pedophile, and obviously I'm using the most extreme example. Uh, if, you, if you hang out with a neo-Nazi pedophile... Uh, you know, and you know that person's a neo-Nazi pedophile, people are going to think at the very least that you are sympathetic to neo-Nazi pedophiles. And maybe you just like interesting people, <laughs> you know. Maybe it's all just a psychological thing for you. You just want to understand people, you know, at every end of the spectrum. Uh, but people are going to judge you by that, and, you know, who are you to say they shouldn't? You know, you are very much the product of your associations, whether you want to accept it or not. Uh, so, you know, but but it's hard. You know, it, it's even hard to meet neo-Nazi pedophiles as an adult. It's even hard to make friend group friendships in that niche uh, as an adult because it's just it's a hard thing to do. So naturally, people cling on to their friendships. 
They, they cling on to just about everything they can. And something that it seems to be new among my generation, and this plays into yesterday's episode, is that people will now cling on to their childhood again. I don't remember ever seeing a group of people, adult people, who defined themselves so much by the things they were into when they were 10 years old. I, I don't ever remember seeing that. You know, I'm sure they existed, but they were the guys in, in the basement of the Polish social club having a, you know, a secret underground convention in the 80s or whatever. You know, they weren't... It was, it was a very much a, a subculture that you didn't see everywhere, whereas now it's a very visible aspect of pop culture in the mainstream, the fact that people in their 30s, maybe even 40s now, will define themselves by things they were into when they were 10 years old, by the video games they played, by the, the cartoons they watched. You know, this wasn't nearly as prevalent in previous generations, not even Gen X. You know, I feel like at least Gen X defines themselves largely on their teenage credibility. <laughs> They're at least like, you know, I was in uh, eighth grade when Nevermind came out. I bought Nirvana's Nevermind, you know, three months after it came out. Because all my friends were buying it. And I'm going to rest on that credibility. I bought a guitar when Nevermind came out. You know, Gen X very much, at least they're resting on their teenage credibility. They're like, I wore flannel in 1995. When Fred Meyer started selling grunge outfits, I bought one. You know, at least they're resting on that, but it's like, you look at Gen X, and I feel like we are the first, uh, or sorry, uh, Gen X is resting on their teenage credibility, but you look at the millennials, and I feel like this generation, my generation... We're not resting on our teenage credibility. We're invested in what we were doing when we were 10. And that's new. And I feel like, you know, the lack of, you know, the number of people who aren't having children plays into that too. Because that's one thing I see with parents. And it's something that's very healthy about parenthood. And seeing it play out with my own peers has been really eye-opening for me. But parents let go of you know, good parents, you know, not everyone's a good parent, but, you know, the, a lot of the parents I see who just from, from an outside view seem like good parents to me, barring some deep, dark secret I don't know about, barring some deep, dark neo-Nazi pedophilia I don't know about, these people seem like good parents to me. And one of the reasons I feel that way is because I see where they've let go of their previous identity, that youthful part of themselves that was clinging and clawing and trying to find some sort of identity through interests, through ideas. And not that they should let go of those things, but I'm talking about the really grabby, needy, teenage way that people go about it, where they're just on this you know, merry-go-round, this carousel of, of things that their friends are doing, that they see, you know, and... They're replacing this with that because they're just trying to figure out who they are. I see where these people, they become parents, and they've largely let go of that because they have this new purpose. And even they're working a job, like, it has a purpose because they're putting food on the table for their kids. As much as that's a cliche where it's like, this is all for my family. I'm doing this for my family. I need a raise for my family. Uh, there's some truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. You know, they become very much oriented around their family, around their kids. And there's something very healthy about that because they let go of this previous version of themselves that was not a parent. And they are now, they're now taking care of these people and raising them. But that part of them doesn't go away completely because they start putting that on their children. And while they themselves might not be buying toys for themselves, you know, they might not be filling their house with you know, unopened action figures with G.I. Joes, with first pressing, first line 1981 G.I. Joe figures. They might not be screaming at children at comic conventions for touching mint G.I. Joes without permission. But they want their kid to get into those things. You see this a lot with parents where they want their kid, like a father wants his son to have the same interests he had when he was a kid. 
And even though there's new things that have come out, even though the kid, he doesn't care about G.I. Joes because he's into, you know, Angry Birds or whatever the kids are doing now. He's into Fortnite. I keep talking about Fortnite. I don't even know what it is. It's something I heard, I saw in passing. I know it's a video game, and, and it's just now I use it. It's my way of, here I am clinging to relevance. I'm like, I know what people are doing. I've heard of Fortnite. Uh, but I think kids are into that. They're into Minecraft. You know, They're into that kind of thing. They're less into G.I. Joes. They're less into action figures. And, uh, but, you know, a, a dad today is like, I want you to play with uh, Ninja Turtles because I was into Ninja Turtles. I want you to play with this because I was into this. And a great example of that is I had a boss a while back and he was about 20 years older than me. And he bought his kids a train set for Christmas one year. And I, I don't think the kids were impressed at all. The impression I got was that the kids were not impressed and I remember him talking about it, and he was like, you know, like, because I had a train set when I was a kid in, like, 1969 or something, you know. And uh, he's like, I had a train set when I was a kid, and I just loved it. And it's like your kids in, like, 2010 or whatever year it was, it's like, they're not going to give a shit about a train set. If they're really nice and conscientious of their parents, which I don't think these kids were, uh, <laughs> they, uh, they might pretend to like it for the duration of Christmas Day before they go back to Fortnite or Minecraft, um, Nightcraft, before they start playing Nightcraft again. Uh, and uh, But I just remember he was so, you could tell that he had put so much like emphasis on this train set and his kids just didn't give a fuck because, you know, I was 20 years younger than this guy and I didn't give a fuck about train sets. Like if somebody had gotten me a train set, when I was uh, seven years old, I would not have given a shit. I would have been like, where's the Legos? Where's the Legos? Uh, and uh, I would not have given a shit about a train, sh a train shit. A train shit. I don't care about this train shit. The one thing I did like about trains, just seeing them in passing, I never had a train set that I can remember, is I did like all the miniatures. But that was, you know, a crazy adult hobby. Those were the guys, that's what I mean when I say, like, Previous generations, they did have people who clinged, who clung to their childhoods, but it was sort of this underground thing. You had guys who were into trains. Like, I wasn't exposed to very many adults who were obsessed with trains. You know, those guys went from hobby shop to basement. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had basements filled with that, but it wasn't a kid thing. It was like to have a big train set, you know, to have a big, like, diorama train set. Those were really cool to me. But it was not something that kids had. Kids weren't building like entire villages and mountains for their trains to run through. That was very much an adult hobby. Uh, so, but just the idea of just a train set, just a track on the ground and a train goes around in circles. Like when I was seven years old, I would not have given a fuck about that. And I would have been like, what is this 1950, you know, old timey bullshit? I do not care about a train set. And so the idea of this guy like buying his kids a train set in 2010 and expecting them to give a shit, that's, a, that's an even deeper pipe dream. You're even deeper in the bowl of that pipe. If you think your kids in 2010 are going to give a shit about a train set. And someone listening might be like, I have some nephews who have a train set and they love it. And it's like, well, they're an exception. <laughs> they're, they're the exception to the rule. They're the only kids who, who love their train set in today's world. But is that, it's that sort of thinking, though, to get back to what I was saying, where, where it's like, oh, I was really into my train set when I was a kid, so my son's going to be into his train set, too. And you see it with toys, like I definitely remember that, where parents would be like, well, you, you know, I was into this, so I'm going to get you into this, and the kid doesn't give a fuck. The kid just doesn't give a fuck because it's it's not what they're into. Uh, and you see it with sports. I mean, it's not just toys. You see it where, like, a dad will be like, you know, I played, I played baseball when I was a kid, and I loved it, and they just try to get their son into it. And not even in that, like, creepy, overbearing, like, you're going to be a pitcher in the, in the major league base. You're going to be in the major leagues in 20 years, so we got to get you started now. Not even to that level, but just even just a parent being like, well, I really want you to play baseball for me because, uh, you know, I played baseball and I love baseball. And, you know, uh, your Uncle Jerry bought you a mitt before you were even born, so we better use it. You wouldn't want to not use a gift from your Uncle Jerry. 
but then the kid, you know, by the time they've played like t-ball for three years, the dad just realizes that this kid is not into it. This kid's going to go play Nightcraft. This kid does not care about sports or baseball. And it's, you know, part of that acceptance is being like, oh, well, this kid is not my identity. So in that way, parents have to go through the same thing, even though by extension, they can start putting their identity, start putting parts of them onto the kid. Uh, Like, oh, well, I was into this, so you can be into this. You know, now you can continue on the legacy of playing (laughs) t-ball, of playing with trains, Son, I need you to continue the family legacy of being into train sets. Uh, But, you know, in that way, parents also have to realize that, hey, this kid isn't me. They're not just going to do what I, you know, want them to do. And that goes, too, for, like, what you want your kid to end up doing professionally. Are you going to be a lawyer? Are you going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an MLB pitcher? You also have to let go of this, like, projection of your child's future. Uh, You know, it's, it's... so that happens in childhood, but the whole point is that part of being a good parent, I think, is letting go of all the bullshit that you would attach to yourself. And whether you project it all onto your kid or whether you let your kid do whatever they want, I do notice this trend, and I think there's something deep and biological in it, uh, so it's not really a trend, is it? Uh, but I, there is this process that happens with parenthood where they're no longer concerned with the same bullshit that they were concerned about. They're no longer trying to hammer away at the same superficial identity they had because they have a much stronger and more eternal identity, which is parenthood. And this is something that I, you know, in the same way that I see where my generation has latched onto this idea of... I'm going to be into the same things I was into as a kid. I'm in this permanent adolescence. They also have this, you know, disdain for kids and parenthood. And in that way, everybody in my generation has sort of become the G.I. Joe merchant that I referenced last episode, the guy who has this horde of G.I. Joes in their mint packaging at the comic convention. And when the kids go up and look at him, he screams at him, don't touch the Joes. Cause he thinks he, when you're like that, you think everybody's going to taint this thing. You think kids are going to taint it. But I feel like my generation has become that guy in that we're all in this permanent adolescence and we, and we view children as some kind of threat. Like, and, and in that way, children sort of are, because I was talking about how the people who have kids do sort of lose that adolescence. If they are actually, fully formed people. If they are fully formed people who have a child, they will lose that adolescent part of themselves because they now have a real-life adolescent in their life, a real-life adolescent in their life to take care of. And even if they, like, pretend to be a kid sometimes because being a parent requires that, you know, they've let go of that part of themselves. But, you know, I, I feel like this thing with you know, millennials who are anti-kid and they pat themselves on the back for not procreating and they, you know, volunteer that to everybody. They're like, just so you know, I'm not having a kid. Cue applause. Cue the applause. I'm not having a kid. Oh, I think kids are gross. You know, there's this very, like, masturbatory, literally masturbatory. You know, there's something literally masturbatory about it because it's like, I'm not going to procreate. Uh, and they, there's part of that mentality that sees kids as a threat, not just to their freedom, but to, I think, that adolescent part of themselves, because somewhere deep down, I think people know that if they were to have a child or have a family, that they would have to let go of that permanent adolescence they're holding on to, and they don't want to let go of it because uh, they don't know what they would, what else they, to do. They don't realize, you know, how important that process of becoming a parent actually is. They don't, because, you know, because uh, it's not that the people I know who have become good parents, it's not that they expected it. It's not like they were like, oh, well, now I'm going to become a good parent and let go of these previous incarnations of myself that no longer serve me. A lot of them got caught by surprise. I, I can think about somebody in particular who I was hanging out with in the months leading up to them getting pregnant, having a kid. And and I remember she was super anti-kid. She did not see herself ever having children. And then she did. And it was like a, a light switch. 
it, it's crazy to see that. Like, truly, you know, you know, people want to like pat each other on the back for all kinds of like ridiculous accomplishments. They want to try to like force, you know, squares into the, the, the round pay. I don't know, whatever that, whatever metaphor you want to use. Uh, they just try to force so many things. And then you see somebody, you know, become a parent and it's just like a, like a switch gets flipped. And especially for somebody who had no interest in it and was actually averse to it and to see them switch to parenthood so seamlessly. And I'm sure to them, it doesn't feel seamless. I'm sure that, you know, it's jarring. And, you know, I know, People can make all the jokes about sleepless nights and crying babies and all that. But it's like from an outside perspective, like the transition in identity seemed seamless to me. Uh, but it's just a fascinating thing, just just how quickly that takes hold. So it's like someone who's like, well, I don't want to lose this identity, blah, blah, blah. I think those people would be very surprised how quickly they would transition into this new, more meaningful identity. And they would be able to detach themselves from that previous part of themselves that was like, I'm a hip young single who's into bands. Uh, you know, I think they would realize that they could detach themselves from that much more quickly, but it would be a meaningful detachment. And that's where we get back to yesterday's episode again, where I talked about all this stuff from your childhood kind of becoming tainted by Star Wars movies starting to suck, collectibles losing their value. Um, you know, pop culture deteriorating, the things from your childhood getting remade, recycled, butchered, and how that kind of give you an opportunity to meaningfully detach from those things. You don't have to be somebody who is this, you know, man-child just obsessed with all your childhood interests. When your childhood interests become shitty, it gives you an opportunity to transition, and for me, that happened much earlier, where it was like, oh, I'm into music now, I'm into these ideas now, I'm going to start reading Nietzsche now, I'm going to buy, uh, you know, some cliff notes of a Nietzsche book, this is a new identity, you know, it's like, for me, it's like, I went through that process earlier on, so it wasn't when, you know, I guess I'm hesitant to go into some of the more sp specific things from my life the last couple years. Uh, but one of those was, uh, you know, true crime where, you know, one of my interests as a teenager, but especially going back to when I was a little kid, I remember being interested in this, but it really developed as a teenager and, a, and an adult where I became somewhat of an expert in true crime. I was the guy that you could say, well, have you ever heard of this serial ki this serial killer? And I was like, oh, yeah, I can tell you what his yearbook quote was. You know, I was that guy. And not somebody who was like into the fact that these guys were killers and I wasn't into the violence. I'm a squeamish person, but I was somebody who got deep into the psychology of it, you know, not to not to overly explain, you know, my interest in it, because I think it speaks for itself why these things are fascinating. But I was very much the person who you could go to and be like, have you seen this documentary? Have you read this book? And I'd be like, yeah, uh, I'll, I can talk to you all about it, all about these serial killers, you know, these these crazy people out there. Uh, but realizing a few years ago, I was just like, this is not only less interesting to me now, but it feels like it, it's no longer serving me, and it doesn't feel like something that I want to revisit either. Which is an interesting feeling, because we have so many interests that kind of are on a carousel where things come and go. Like, I have interests like that, where uh, I'll be really into something for a few months, and then I just kind of, you know, I get so obsessive that I kind of kill my interest in it. Uh, no pun intended, talking about true crime and all this. But I'll kind of kill my interest in it. And then I'll revisit it, though, like a year later. I'll be like, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll go back to these books. I'll go back to this subject. I just, I kind of burned myself out, but I'm going to go back to it. But it's a really strange feeling when you know you're not going to go back to something. When you know that it truly no longer serves you. And that happened to me with true crime. And, you know, in some way, that was a part of my identity I lost because it used to be something that I enjoyed talking to friends about. You know, a surprising number of my friends were interested in that. Women, a lot of women are into true crime. Uh, a lot of those shows, a lot of, a lot of those podcasts, are, they cater to women. But it used to be a thing that people were kind of hush-hush about where people were like, I'm kind of obsessed with serial killers. And not in a weird way, but, you know, and, you know, but, and this guy in particular... Uh, one of my good friends, I remember one of the first times I met her, she was like, you know, my favorite serial killer is Jeffrey Dahmer, or something to that effect. And it was sort of this hush-hush thing, and I was like, well, let's talk about Jeffrey Dahmer for the rest of the night. Uh, 
Let's talk about Jeffrey Dahmer for the rest of the night. Did you know what his yearbook quote was? Uh, but that, that used to happen. But now we're in this age where it's like that stuff seems to have come to the forefront. And uh, it happened after I kind of lost interest. And I, I don't think my loss of interest had anything to do with this sudden surge in popularity. You know, as much as I am oppositionally defiant and there is this part of me that like when things get oversaturated or the overexposed, I distance myself from them. As much as I have a tendency to do that, I don't think it happened in this case. I think it was just the product of me just changing the way I think. I just realized that, you know, immersing yourself in such dark material all the time, even if it wasn't for some gross reason, it still does something to you. And I also felt like I had reached the logical conclusion of that kind of studying, where it's like you're studying these malignant you know, malformed brains that produce just the worst form of human behavior. And you reach a point where you realize, I'm not going to get any further with this. I've read about a lot of different examples. I've seen where there's parallels between them. I've seen where they're different. But I'm not going to come to any true... I'm not going to find any deeper understanding than what I currently have now. I think that's what I realized, and then I realized that, you know, in repro- in reprogramming my brain and, you know, trying to see things, trying to see the light a little more often, I don't need to be reading about this stuff. And I didn't have to force it, I was just ready to let go of that stuff. But it was a part of my identity, as strange as it is to say. And it, you know, and that impacts your relationships with people. It impacts, you know all the friends who I used to talk to about true crime, you know, it's, it's, they'll send me, I mean, a friend of mine, he sent me an article about a month ago and it was about some serial killer that I'd never heard of, or maybe I had, but I didn't read the article. Uh, It was some new discovery. I can't even remember what it was. Uh, I just read the headline, but I was like, Hey man, I'm just, I I just don't really follow this stuff anymore. Uh, You know, it's just kind of, I don't know. I think, I think he took it the wrong way to be honest. I think he, it kind of sounded like a, why did I need to say that? I could have just said, oh, thanks. But I guess I just felt the need to say, hey, I'm not terribly interested in this anymore. And a similar thing happened a couple of years ago where a relative of mine bought me a true crime book for the holidays or my birthday. And I was just like, hey, I'm just not into this anymore. Because sometimes you have to kind of assert that. Sometimes you have to tell somebody, especially if it's something that you feel like truly no longer serves you. It's like, I'm not going to indulge in this anymore. And in some ways, like letting go of something, letting go of an interest, or if it is a larger part of your identity, sometimes when you do that, it kind of, it has the same effect as like when an old friend is like, hey, Eric, and you go like, it's not Eric anymore, it's Ricky. Call me Ricky. And they're like, but but you were always Eric. And it's like, yeah, but I go by Ricky now. You haven't seen me in a long time. I'm Ricky now. It's always off-putting. Even if you truly deserve to, you know, rename yourself Ricky, to give yourself a great nickname like that, it's still kind of an asshole move to be like, it's Ricky now. I know you grew up with me and you always knew me by my old name, but it's Ricky. It's, it's always kind of an asshole move to assert that. And sometimes it feels that way when, you know, somebody who's known you is like, hey, have you heard of this thing? Have you read this? And you're like, I don't, I don't read that anymore. It's almost like, that's not me anymore. You know, there, there's something kind of like ridiculous and, you know, can make you feel like an asshole and can make you an asshole for reacting that way. But there is this part of you that wants to make it clear that I'm just, it's almost like somebody like getting a hold of you being like, hey, let's go get a drink. And if you don't drink anymore, it's like, you could either say, oh, no, I'm busy. Or you could tell, remind them or tell them for the first time, be like, oh, yeah, I don't drink anymore. And that's another form of that. And people don't like that either. You know, some people are cool with it. I mean, if someone is meant to be in your life, they're going to be cool with whatever you say. Even if you're an asshole, they probably already know that about you. And they're cool with that, too, to some degree. Uh, But it's a very similar sort of thing. When this thing that people associate with you is no longer a part of you and you have to tell them that, it can easily be off-putting. Because part of their image of you might be associated with that thing. And if it's alcohol or true crime or something, you know, good riddance. But it might also be something like music. It might be art. And I think that's a good way to segue. We have a lot of segues here now. 
the segues are rolling in. Uh, but uh, that's something that I'm going through, you know, recently where I just, you know, if the rants about Melkor and Morgoth in episodes recently uh, are, are any indication, it's that, you know, I feel very detached from music and, you know, subversive art and culture and things that I was very immersed in and I feel like will always be a part of me in some way. I feel very detached from those things, and it's the same sort of meaningful detachment that I've experienced now several times over. And whereas that meaningful detachment when I was, say, you know, 14 years old led to new attachments, which, you know, were those subversive arts, it was, you know, music, it were the you know I replaced these childhood interests with these nuanced new interests, and then you know as I was saying, some things cycle back. I wasn't as interested in football for a few years when I was a teenager, and that cycled back hard. And you know I'm as into football as I ever was. Um, but I have reached a point recently where it's these things that I I spent so much time thinking about, and you know putting so much effort into, and so much thought, and that despite that effort, also were kind of a natural interest they just they were there and and they seem to make sense aren't making as much sense to me and one of those is my interest in music and it's not that I don't like music I still have the same exact taste but my desire to have that be such a dominant part of who I am is very much slipping away and it has been for quite a while and I didn't want to admit it. I think that's the thing too. Is this isn't that recent. I think it's actually been happening for a long time. And uh I was clinging on to it because it was such an important part of my identity. Uh and so realizing lately that you know I can let go of that has been extremely liberating. And the really difficult thing is to let go of something without having any sense of spite without trying to justify it, without trying to, you know, throw a barb at it as it slips away. Because <laughs> that's always difficult for me. Is like when you've decided something no longer serves you, it's very easy to demonize it. And going back to alcohol, that's a great example where it's like, if you quit drinking, it's very easy to suddenly turn around and be like, alcohol's the worst thing ever. You drink, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin your life. It's very easy to turn around and like, you know, you have to throw this barb along with it. You can't just let go. You have to, like, throw a javelin in, in, into its ribcage as it's slipping away. You have to break the bottle. You can't just set the bottle down. You have to smash it. And people do that with a lot of things. I mean, you see it when someone becomes a born-again Christian, where it's like, it's not good enough just to be born again and to let go of these, you know, other behaviors. It, it's you, They have to be like, well, I, I, I no longer sin and... and all these things I used to do are the worst thing ever, and I'm at war with them. And I'm going to save everybody who was doing what I was doing. You know, it's very easy to get into that form of thinking, and so it's important for me not to do that, even though there is this critical part of me that will. <laughs> you know, I have to accept that there is this part of me that will inevitably be a little bit aggro or a little bit critical. And what's a little bit critical or aggro to me might seem really fucking critical or aggro to someone else. That's something I've also had to realize is that something to me that is just an offhanded remark might sound like some like heavy artillery insult to somebody else. Uh, but all these things, you know, have fed into each other. But I'm at a point now where I'm not really replacing. I'm not replacing the things I'm letting go of. If something naturally fits in, if something new or something else naturally just manages to fit itself in, or if something that I thought I had let go of comes back, if there's some boomerang effect, if there's some carousel effect, where some interest that I thought had gone does come back, that's okay too. Uh, but it's important for me not to you know, immediately attach myself to something else. I mean, you see it with people who ride the carousel of belief systems. Where it's like, oh, I'm into this now. I, I, I'm into, I'm into, uh, you know, Buddhism right now. But uh, tomorrow I'm going to be into, uh, you know, th theosophy. And when I get into theosophy, that means I have to reject Buddhism. And there's that idea too, where it's like, when you're, you know, when you're in this mode of thinking where you're like, oh, I'm, I'm just going to replace things with something else. You have a tendency to then 
reject the thing that you would let go of. And letting go of something without rejecting it is an extremely difficult thing to do. But if you do truly feel this impulse to meaningfully detach, and it's not much of an impulse if it comes to you naturally, it just kind of happens. But if you do feel this impulse to, you know, just let go, uh, you really don't have to reject it. You really don't have to push it away. It'll just fall away. And you'll have way less guilt and way less dissonance if it does come back. Because if you push it away and you reject it, and it's it turns out it was part of your carousel and it's going to come back into your life, you're going to feel really stupid. It's like if you start drinking again. It's like, oh, well, like I made this big deal about how horrible alcohol is for everybody and how everybody who drinks is ruining their life. And, and, you know, I go to these meetings where the only people I interact with are other people who have had problems with alcohol and I've walled myself in. You know, I've, I've you know, walled myself in. And it's, it's like if you do start drinking again, you're going to feel way more stupid that you made such a big deal about it. And this is where, like, I'm not the best person to listen to for advice on that. I don't want to get into that too much. Um, but it's like if, if you protest too much when you're letting go of something, it's like it, you're just going to feel that much more stupid. And chances are it's going to come back and hit you in the side of the head when you least expect it too. You're not going to realize that it was a boomerang. You're not going to realize it was uh, just another horse on your damn carousel. And it's going to blindside you. So if you let go of something and you just say, hey, if this thing that I feel like no longer serves me does come back to me, cool. But I'm more than ready to move on and move on without replacing it with something. And you see that with relationships as well, where someone breaks up with somebody or gets broken up with. And uh, oftentimes their first thought is, how can I get this person back? Or how can I replace this person with another person? And they'll immediately start making efforts to do both of those things. Or they will immediately reject that person and start demonizing that person. And that's exactly what I was just talking about uh, with other things, where, you know, they get broken up with and they'll be like, well, they were, they sucked anyway. They sucked anyway. I'm glad. I'm glad. And that's where that protest, and then, you know, they end up dating them again and then they feel fucking stupid. It's like, oh, I thought they sucked anyway. But the other thing people do is they try to hold on uh, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, well, I'm going to move out gradually because the, the more that I slow down moving out of this shitty apartment, the more likely she is to reconsider and we'll get back together. And some of my stuff will still be there and I have an excuse to see her. You know, you know that's, that's the way some people think. And, uh, cause that's a part of their identity that they're losing against their will. And that's a whole crazy thing is when you feel like you're losing something against your will. And sometimes that is your interest. I mean, that's what happens to like kids when they get into something and their parent disapproves and they're like, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out your uh, CDs. I'm going to give your CDs away because they're a bad influence. You know, that's, you know, like being broken up with. It's like somebody's taking something away from you, taking a part of your identity away against your will. But that's how people feel when they're broken up with. And, uh, you know, they have this tendency to either be like, well, I'm going to try to win them back immediately. Or I'm going to find someone else. I'm going to get on Tinder tomorrow. You know, it's like that's, that's the way some people think. Uh, and a lot of people. I'm not talking about a minority of people. I'm, I'm, even if people don't all act that way, I would say the majority of people go through similar thought patterns. And it's very difficult for them to imagine... Um, life without that thing. But, you know, I think the healthiest approach to that is always, you know, not immediately replacing that person. Because that's the thing, too, is even if you're trying to win that person back, something has changed, and you're not going to win that person back and have things be the same way they were with that person when you were together. It's going to be different. So you're actually trying to replace that person with another version of that person, but with this added dissonance in between that probably isn't going to work out, <laughs> you know? Uh, 
so no matter what, it's this process of like, you know, you're, de- you're detaching from something, even if it's against your will, and you're trying to attach to something else. And even if it's the same person who broke up with you, you're really attaching yourself to something else by trying to win them back, or you're trying to get someone new and attach yourself to someone new. So, so often you're trying to fill your life with more attachments every time you detach from somebody or something. So it doesn't matter if it's relationships, comic books, you know, uh, music, interests. It's like we go through this continual process of, you know, detachment, you know, both willingly against our will. Sometimes it's just sort of in between. Uh, It's not something we would necessarily choose, but yet it feels kind of natural. And that could describe a relationship, a breakup, just as well as it could, you know, losing interest in something. Because, I mean, my lack of enthusiasm for music which is surprisingly not bitter, you know, despite some of the barbed comments I make, which I, like I said, are inevitable. It's not that I'm really bitter about music or anything like that. It's just that I just feel like, I I just feel, it's not something I would have chosen, but it feels natural to me uh, to distance myself from even just interest in being a fan of that stuff right now. And I I think it's a given that music will be part of that carousel that comes back again. And I'll probably do a school night episode soon. I would love to do an episode. There's still some music I very much love. It's not like I'm like, music, who listens to music? Why would I ever play music? You know, it's not like that's my attitude at all. But it has become this sort of thing that I, I felt the need to detach from. Uh, and... Uh, I don't know. Uh, I should probably, we're a little over an hour, so I probably shouldn't keep going on. I think the idea has hopefully been carried through that these things, it's not just a matter of, oh, you know, my childhood interests are no longer interesting to me. It's a, a continual lifelong process, and that's the first stage of it. Or maybe the first stage is, you know, like getting weaned off the tit or whatever. It's like no longer being breastfed is the first thing. You know, you're attached to this thing. It's your source of food. It's a source of comfort. And then you got to switch to the bottle. Then you got to switch to a cup. Um, and for the record, I was never breastfed. And that's true. I was never breastfed. I had some... I, my mouth was filled with canker sores when I was born. And uh, you can still hear it in my voice now. But uh, my, my mouth was filled with canker sores for whatever reason, and I had the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck, and I was blue. And I, my mouth was filled with canker sores. I don't know if that was a byproduct of being strangled by my own umbilical cord, and read into this however you want. Uh, but I couldn't breastfeed for that reason, and they had to import this formula that was used for brain-dead people in China, for catatonic people in China. It was some sort of, like, you know, fake milk substitute that was easily consumed and digestible and it was intended for catatonic people in China and that's what that was my source of nourishment out of the womb so think about that <laughs> i didn't have to get weaned off the the boob i probably had a tantrum because uh, you know they took away my catatonic chinese brain dead formula uh, you know so Uh, It's not just that I had to, you know, accept the fact that I was no longer interested in true crime at the age of 30. I started out having to accept the fact that I couldn't drink brain-dead Chinese formula for the rest of my life at a very early age. I had to accept that simple truth early on. So in that way, I think I've been going through the same process of detachment my whole life. I would just say the difference is in the last few years, I've had a much firmer understanding that... In the same way that you don't need to replace a relationship with another relationship, you don't need to replace an interest with another interest, you don't need to try to fill that void, and maybe you should accept uh, involuntary meditation when it happens. Maybe. As, As much as I'm into voluntary meditation, maybe you just need to accept that sort of involuntary meditation and see what's there. You know, see what's there, because what you'll realize is you won't get left with a blank slate. That's one thing that I've learned through all of this, is you're you're never truly left with just a blank slate. You're never just going to be a piece of white paper. There's always going to be something on there. There's always going to be some, you know, sense of identity. 
And that's sort of the catch-22 of deliberately trying to strip yourself of all these identities as you realize that there is a much stronger identity there that you can't get away from. And I think that's what people try to get away from when they fill their life with new attachments to replace their old attachments. And when they fear detaching themselves from this, uh, they're actually afraid of the fact that there is a, a much deeper core identity rooted inside of them. And so they attach all these other things to it because they don't want to work on that. And who says you need to? You know, who says you need to work on that core part of your identity? Or who even says you can? But who am I to know? Who am I to say? You know, the very first food I ever consumed outside of the womb was Chinese milk substitute formula intended for brain-dead people. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave This golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a 